evidence and answers. The religion of Islam is based on the writings found in the Quran. But what does this mysterious book say? How is it interpreted? And what can we learn from it? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will interview Mark Robert Anderson, author of the book, Quran in Context. Mark has studied the Quran and will help us to understand these Islamic writings a little bit better. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Let's tune in now as Pat Zukran presents part one of his interview with author and lecturer, Mark Robert Anderson. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and give biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, a religion you're hearing a lot about today is Islam, and the Holy Book of Islam is the Quran. However, if you ever try to read the Quran, you may discover it's a difficult book to understand. Well, to help us today to understand the Quran and some of its teachings is Mark Robert Anderson, who has written a great book on the subject, the Quran in context. Mark has a master's in Islamic studies from McGill University and has studied and taught in the Middle Eastern countries like Egypt and Jordan, and he writes and lectures on Islam and the Quran throughout the world. So, Mark, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Pat. Well, Mark, when it comes to understanding the Quran, it can be difficult for many people. Uh, why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Probably the, the main reasons, it's not given to us in chronological order. So it claims to have revelations given to Muhammad over a period of about 22 years. But if you can just imagine, they're, they're not in any sequence, not, not in the sequence they came in. So they're, they're kind of mixed from different time periods and you're jumping back and forth. And so that's very confusing. The other thing that makes it even harder is that there's almost no context given to you as the reader as to what the background is, what you're just hearing or, or reading speeches from God. That's what it claims to be. Speeches from God given at different times to different groups uh, through Muhammad, and you don't know what those times were, you don't know what was going on. So again, you're really left in a fog, and, and that adds to the confusion greatly. Yeah, you know, Mark, when I read the Quran, sometimes I feel like I'm jumping into the middle of a conversation and trying to figure out what's going on, and then it seems to jump to a different topic. Is that what yeah. most people will get when they read the Quran? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's well put. And it seems to go from the longer chapters or surahs to the shorter chapters. That seems to be how it's arranged. So not in chronological right. order, as you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So if someone is trying to understand the Quran, what's the best way to approach this? Well, you really do have to come to the Quran with the background story. If you don't have that, you'll, you'll be quite lost. And Muslims do have that. So in their tradition, they are given the story of Muhammad, how he preached to pagans, polytheists in Arabia. Then he migrated to from Mecca to Medina, 
and there was a Jewish community there. And so all those details are given to them in the tradition. They they bring that to the Quran, and if they're reading, they, they would at least have some sort of idea. This, this sounds like it must be given to maybe the Jewish community or something like that. So if we, as Christians or non-Muslims, don't have that or don't, yeah, we're going to be struggling. So you need to have some uh, basic understanding. My book does give that in one of the chapters. Yes. Now, the teachings of the Quran seem to be a mix of a lot of religions, including Judaism, Christianity, folk Judaism, Gnostic Christianity, even some Zoroastrianism and, and part of the tribal religions of Arabia. It seems to be a mix of those. Is that is that what you see? Yeah, well, basically, like from a Muslim point of view, of course, the whole thing is exactly God's word. There's no mix of anything. But as a non-Muslim, we just, if we're just simply looking at what do we see there, what what sort of resemblances, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The Middle East at that time was just awash with all kinds of different religious viewpoints, Judaism, Christianity, Zoroastrianism, and different variations on those. And so you, you find all sorts of things like that reflected in the Quran, definitely. Now, you state it's important to understand the cultural context of the Middle East when the Quran was written. So tell us a little bit of the background of the Middle East during the time of Muhammad there in the 6th century A.D., one point that I think is absolutely crucial to understanding the Quran rightly is that there was a world war essentially being fought, not in Arabia, but just beyond Arabia. And actually on both ends of the trade route that Mecca and Medina were on, you had this war going on. And it started before Muhammad received his first messages or, or, or began preaching, whichever way we're going to look at it, Muslim or Christian. So that war was really the backdrop in many respects. And uh, it ended just before Muhammad died, a couple of years before he died. And so it sort of set the stage then for the Arab expansion out of, out of Arabia, they took over the Persian Empire, and they made huge, uh, took huge chunks out of the uh, Byzantine Empire. So all of that sort of, oh, and, and the other thing is, this war was a religious war. So it was a war being fought between Christians and Zoroastrians. And the Christians who were fighting, they went with icons in front of them. And they uh, actually, the Byzantine Emperor declared that any Christian who died fighting in that war would go directly to heaven. So you find that reflected in the Quran. The same sort of thing is, is given there to the Muslims who were fighting uh, in Muhammad's armies. So yeah, that background is really important for us to understand the militarism, for example, in the Quran. Yeah, so that war was between the Byzantines and the Persians? And the Persians, that's right. Right. Now, why is it important to understand that particular war and what was, you know, what was going on in that war? 
Okay, well, I mean, the Persians and the Byzantines had been going, you know, fighting back and forth at different points. And usually they were just kind of taking a little bit of territory, changing the boundaries a bit, pushing it this way and pushing it back and and so on. That was the way it went for most of the time. But then in, I think it was 608, if I remember correctly, the Persians just came right out of their out of Persia and shot all the way across over a period of years to Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire. So this was really a massive war. And then before it was over, the Byzantines had sacked the palace of the Persian emperor. This was huge. One of the reasons I think it's so important for us to understand that war is that there are people today who are saying that Muhammad was a peace-loving man and that this is a complete distortion of Islam to talk about jihad as a military sort of thing, that it's just a personal thing. It's just about striving to please God through prayer, through, through being kind, through fasting and those sorts of things. And I mean, I understand that A religion like Islam is a living kind of tradition, and it does grow and change over the years, for sure, just like Christianity, all the religions do. But I think if we want to understand the Quran as it was first understood, then we have to understand it in its original context. And that context was one where there were religious empires. All the empires were religious. And so for Muhammad to begin a different empire with a different religious emphasis, that was normal. It's not normal for us today, and it's not normal for us to have religious wars in the West, certainly, but I think we are distorting Islam if we try to subtract that and sort of turn Muhammad into 21st century American. That That's really not doing him justice. Yes, I think you bring up a really good point there. And hopefully we could talk about the teachings of jihad in the Quran later on. But Mark, how was the Quran created? It was originally given as oral messages. People in those days memorized it to an extent that we don't today at all. So people... They didn't write things down very much. In Arabia, writing was pretty basic, and it was just used for certain specific purposes. So they had a whole oral tradition with poetry, and people memorized things constantly. So the Quranic messages were originally memorized by Muhammad's followers, who would then, you know, just recite those. It was definitely an oral book. Then in the years after Muhammad, as the empire had spread out really uh, was was huge. They were dealing with people who worked with written traditions. And so in the Byzantine world and, and in the Persian world. And so it was written down during that period. There were some variations in the text that they came up with. So there were a number of different texts written down. They didn't all agree. The third Caliph, the third uh, successor after Muhammad, he decided to collect all the variants and destroy them. So that's quite a big difference between how Christians have handled our texts and how it was done in the Muslim 
context. And, and so Muslims today will say, for example, there are no variations. Their text is exactly as God gave it to them. Well, there were variations and they were destroyed. And this is nothing controversial among Muslims. Muslims all would acknowledge that that happened, but it's something that they tend to forget when they're comparing their text to the Bible. Yes. The Quran, I believe, was canonized by the third caliph, as you said, uh, Uthman. I mm-hmm. And I think yeah, most Muslims teach that it was perfectly preserved and brought That's down right. to us. But what you're saying is that there were different variations of the Quran there, which he Absolutely, yeah. destroyed. Tell us about Sorry, that. Sorry, I'll just say there were some extra chapters in certain copies and other chapters missing that ended up in the Quran in other copies. And so there, there were significant variations. Probably it wouldn't have changed the overall shape of what we have in the Quran, but that's still, you, you, it's not true to say that the Quran had no variations. Yeah, how do we know that? I mean, do we have copies of these divergent versions of the Quran? In the last few years, there have been some copies found that show some variations. Again, they're not huge, but there have been copies found in Yemen and in even uh, some of the oldest texts that we have. One is in uh, Birmingham, England. One is in Paris. And so we do have variations there, but actually... What I'm basing it on, even more than just the variations that we've found in recent years, this is what the tradition, the Muslim tradition actually says, that there were certain chapters missing, certain chapters extra, and so on. So this is from their own tradition. Oh, where does it say that? Is that in the Hadith? or? Yeah, yeah. So the Hadith were recorded after Muhammad by about 200 years, and, and that this whole tradition about the early years, and it includes also how the Quran came together. Well, that would be quite damaging, I think, to the Islamic teaching of the Quran, that it's, you know, the perfect book that has come down to us from heaven with no errors, perfectly preserved. Wouldn't that be damaging to that doctrine? I don't think it's a problem to them because for them, the bottom line is that God preserved it and what we have is what was originally there. And so there's a kind of, there's a a faith in the community and in Osman's work that that was sort of guided by God. So, yeah, I don't know that they would lose a lot of sleep over it. But again, it's not something that they like to think about a lot either. I see. Now, how does that differ from text-critical studies done with the Bible? Yeah, well, we have, from the very first, just wanted to see what the text was and, uh, and acknowledged that texts, they just, yeah, if anything that is being copied manually is bound to have some variations. You forget punctuation or crossing a T or whatever, that sort of thing, we can all understand that. And so that happened and we don't make any bones about it. And our approach to it, rather than sort of trying to pick one text, one version and say, okay, this is the one we're going to go with and then get rid of all the rest. We've kept all of them 
And we have a whole, basically like a science of trying to figure out which one we should go with. Again, we have really high accuracy. Any variations that we have are very minor and uh, don't affect major doctrines at all. Yeah, so it seems like when it comes to textual criticism with the Bible, we try to find as many ancient manuscripts as we have, and we have thousands of them to compare and Mm -hmm. look at. It seems like the Quran, you don't have that kind of treasure chest in these ancient manuscripts. That's right. In fact, they don't seem not to want to look at them. Their whole approach is kind of a top-down approach. And so how do we know that the story of Muhammad, for example, that we have, how do we know that that's true? Well, tradition tells us. How do we know that the Quran, Muslims would say the Quran is perfect, that it's, there's absolutely nothing that can surpass it in any way, including artistically. How do we know that? Well, tradition tells us that. And so everything is basically goes back to tradition. And same thing with the text. We know that the text is accurate because tradition tells us that's not the approach that we've taken in Christianity at all. Yeah, it seems almost like a circular argument. It's hard to get past that when talking with Muslims, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. Well, how do you try to get past that? In I think a couple of things. First of all, I mean, Muslims love to talk about their faith generally. I suppose nowadays with all of the bad press there is for Muslims, they may be a little bit more uptight about it. But generally speaking, Muslims are very happy, and especially if they know that you're not just attacking them. And I don't think we need to be defensive in talking with Muslims. The more I have studied the Quran, the stronger my faith in the Bible has become. And I think if you read my book, that's the overall effect, is you're not going to be feeling, oh dear, should I really believe the Bible? I I think you're going to go, wow, we have such an incredible treasure here in Scripture. And so one of the things that I think is really helpful talking to Muslims is just to show them the presentation of Jesus in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount, for example, or some of his healing stories. All of those things are missing from the Quran, although they do have Jesus in the Quran. Those are the parts that were left out. The parts that are included are mostly about when he was an infant or just sort of talking in general terms about what he did, but never anything specific. Uh, No specific stories about healings. There's one story that's given, and it doesn't actually make Jesus look very good, if you ask me. And so, yeah, when Muslims actually encounter Jesus in the Gospels, they find he's quite different from the way they had perceived him. Now, was Muhammad the actual author of the Quran? I know there's some debate in that, and it seems the Quran is quoting some later sources as well. So was he the actual author of the Quran? If we're talking about does it date to Muhammad's lifetime, I think it does. I, I know there's there is some controversy and there, there's a school of thought that uh, says that it didn't exist until maybe even a couple hundred years after Muhammad. We do now have some texts that date to the time of Muhammad. And so I think it's reasonable to accept that the Quran is from that time period. How it actually 
came together. I mean, I don't see any reason to doubt that it, it came from Muhammad, that it, there seems to me to be a consistency in it. But again, there are, there are Western scholars who question that. But I look at those same Western scholars, they would probably question all kinds of things about the New Testament. They would probably want to throw out the Old Testament completely. I want to do to Muslims as I would like them to do to me. And so I don't accept that approach. If if I don't want them throwing the Old Testament out, then I, I don't allow them to throw these these scholars. I don't allow them to throw out the Quran either. I think we can accept that it did come from Muhammad's time period and that it is consistent and came from one person. You're listening to our interview with Mark Robert Anderson, who's written a great book on the subject of the Quran called The Quran in Context. And it's going to really help you understand some of the major teachings of the Quran because it can be difficult to understand as a person without the kind of background needed to have a clear understanding of the Quran in its proper context. Now, Mark, the Quran claims to be consistent with the Bible or, you know, the completion of Allah's revelation to his people. And you say there are some parallels, but also there are some significant differences, aren't there? Absolutely, yeah. So I guess that's the that's the tension that we have as Christians when we look at the Quran is we want to be fair and recognize the similarities. At the same time, we don't want to just dismiss the differences, and, and they're quite significant differences. So I think there are Christians who only want to emphasize the similarities and who pretend there are no differences. And there are Christians likewise on the other end who, who want to... Uh, do the opposite. And, and so I think in fairness, we want to acknowledge, yeah, there are definitely similarities, but huge differences too. Let's take a look at the first one it, regarding the nature of God or Allah in the Quran. How is that similar or different from what the Bible teaches regarding the nature of God? Yeah. So we find, for example, that God is just in the Quran. He is merciful. He cares about his creation. He is the creator God. He's the judge of all humans at the end of time. And he has sent prophets to bring people back to the path of obedience. And so in all of those respects, we can say, yeah, those are, those are the contours that we have in the Bible also. But then looking at some of the differences, there's no real way for you to understand why would God be merciful? Uh, like, how does that not contradict his justice? There's never any sense that God wants relationship with us as humans. He's sort of way, way far off, way high above us, and he only sends down messengers, angels, and then prophets, and so on. But to actually seek relationship, intimacy with us, there's no sense that we have that in the Quran. And that, of course, is a huge difference between the Quran and the Bible. Yeah, the Quran, I believe, describes the relationship between Allah and his people as a master-slave kind of relationship. And, and we don't see yeah. the intimacy like we have in the Bible, the prodigal son or Hosea, mm -hmm. the husband and wife or the, 
the shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. He seems, as you stay distant from his people, they're transcendent, but not That's intimate. right. However, some Muslims have pointed out to me in chapter 50 of the Quran, it says, Allah is closer than my jugular vein. So doesn't that describe some kind of intimate, close relationship with Allah? Well, it's really interesting that there's only a few verses, a handful of verses that Muslims can find in the Quran to talk about God's intimacy with humans, that being probably the main one. And so I don't know about you, but when I think about my jugular vein, it doesn't give me warm sensations. Right. Uh, I, I mean, the jugular vein is the point, you know, you can very easily kill somebody by just attacking them at the jugular. And so if you look at the context of that passage, that verse, it's not a warm, fuzzy kind of verse. It's a verse that's very threatening. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Be sure to share our website with your family, friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence.